All right, folks, um, I'm actually going to be with you briefly. I, I'm really here just to make sure all the tech stuff was working since I was the uh, host and I've handed the host rights over to Dave Cruz. Uh, some of you know Dave, I know at least a couple of you are from uh, the West Franklin campus. And so uh, Dave, um, some of you may know, was one of our ministry residents, which is kind of funny because he's not our typical ministry resident. You know, a lot of times our ministry residents are people just fresh out of seminary, they're young adults, or maybe a few years of ministry experience. Dave actually had his doctorate when he came to us and had about, I don't know, Dave, about 15 years of uh, a full-time ministry experience before coming to us. So he was a little um, um, of an outlier, but uh, we were so glad to have him. And, and then um, so glad that we were able to retain him. And now he's full-time working at a West Franklin campus. Um, been there for about a year now, right, Dave? Yeah. And so, um, so very happy that he is in that role and part of our team. And then Dave, I'll let you do any further introductions if you want to tell a little bit about your family or anything else, okay? Sure. Uh, well, I'm married to Melissa. We've been married 16 years. We have one kid, Noah, who is nine. Uh, if you ever meet him, you'll wonder if he really is nine because he's a giant redheaded kid uh, who is extremely uh, energetic and loud. And uh, yeah, so that's that's just the short of it, man. It's uh, I'm good, glad to be here with y'all tonight. Roger just jumped off, so it's us now, and uh, it's going to be good. Um, I don't know about you all. I am not the hugest fan of just straight lecture. I I like conversation. I enjoy challenging questions, and so um, I'm hoping that you guys are willing to dialogue with me and, and ask questions, answer questions. If not, I've got a boring lecture prepared and uh, you'll, you'll be asleep in 20 minutes and it'll be like being in college again. It'll be awesome. And so uh, let me open up with a quick word of prayer and then we can get to it if y'all are good with that. So Father, we come now. We trust you with this time. We thank you for this time. and thank you for these men and women uh, and their, their, their desire to grow, to understand, to, uh, to just dig deeper into what it means to be a follower. So help us to understand why understanding how the canon came to be and the value of it, uh, how that helps us as believers. So we trust you with this time. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Show of hands time. This is the part we all been dreading. How many of you actually read the whole chapter? Oh, oh, most of the hands are up. Okay, I'll take that. How many of you struggled to read the whole chapter? I'm going to raise my hand. Yes. Kirsten, you don't have your hand raised. You told me you slogged through it. So, okay, Kirsten's not telling the I whole story. I loved it. I just had to you use a dictionary it. a lot. <laughs> yes, yes, that, that's okay. Um, first day of my master's level uh, work, I sat down with my book and realized really quick I needed a dictionary and spent more time in the dictionary than I did in the uh, textbook. So realized real quick, there's a lot of big words out there. Um, I'll be honest, if you don't know a word, ask. If we don't, if we can't answer it, that's the joy of Google. It can usually give us a pretty quick answer. Uh, all right, so there's my first two questions. This is where the conversation begins. Why do you think this is important for you, this chapter? Why is this uh, important for you as you study the New Testament? I mean, it really lays a foundation. It gives context to everything. You know, um, <clears throat> you know how everything was shaped, especially the New Testament. And 
um, you know, if you, if you have specific questions about certain, uh, theology, then maybe you can reference what we learned here. Sure. I agree with that. Plus it's just fun from a history standpoint. Yeah. How many of you are history buffs? Okay. That's good. That's good. Those of you that weren't, maybe you're just like, okay, Kelly, thanks. I see that hand raised. That's new to me. Karen's coming back. Let me let her back in the class here. And uh, yeah. Um, anyone else have a thought? How is this going to, why is this important as you study the New Testament? Uh, it's Adam Harper. Hey, Adam. Um, for me, like the whole, the whole truth thing in, in John, like that's really spoke to me how it said your word is truth and then Jesus who is the truth gives the spirit of truth who leads believers into all truth and this truth is your your word or God's word that to me the testimony of truth was why like how this all formed and how all this became what it truly is you know and how we can then stand on that foundation. Yeah, that to me, because in our lifetime, there's so much non-truth. And for me, that's the biggest thing of why this came to be true. That's, that's solid. What else? For me, um, besides the fact that it's very reassuring personally, I think it's great in terms of defending our faith because a common thing that comes up from non-believers or people of other faiths is, you know, the Bible is not accurate or it's a myth or it was translated wrong. And they just say those things because that's what other people said to them. And, you know, if you ask for any proof, they're not going to give you any. But at the same time, if you can't counter that with your own proof, then, you know, it's a he said, she said, who's right, who read off Facebook type of thing. Um, and so to actually have the numbers and the facts on your side is very powerful. And I'm actually so glad we had this because I covered this many years ago in Bible school, but all my stuff is back in South Africa. And so when I saw the actual numbers there with the exact same documents, like Julius Caesar and all that, I was like, yes, I have it again. I, I didn't learn it off by heart the last time. So I've been, I've been giving half facts. I'm just like, it's, there's a lot more, there's a lot more documents. So now I can give the numbers again, which is great. Yeah, I think that, that your answer is solid there. Um, in my experience, just from practical side of ministry, that's one of the biggest uh, challenges that, that non-believers have. How do I know? You know, and like you said, they've been told and they just buy it from whoever told them. So if we, uh, as we engage people with the gospel, have opportunity and ways to show them, well, let's show you the, the historical manuscripts and the numbers that we have. Uh, let's show you the processes that this went through to become a canon, that, you know, this wasn't just some bunch of robed men in a closed off room, but it was actually the, the early church affirming uh, that this is actually God's word, it's scripture. Uh, I think that's huge for us. So it's not just opinion that this is God's word, um, but we can show the process and the reason that we can affirm that it's God's word. And that's huge uh, because like you said, people don't want to believe that it's scripture. They need to be led to the point where they can embrace the, 
the evidence, I guess, is the right word for that. All right. Uh, let me ask you this question. As we think about your, this, this quarter, I don't, I guess it's a quarter semester, is really walking through the books of the New Testament and, and understanding that. How does, how does understanding the formation of, of the canon, how do you think that's going to help you get through the rest of these semesters or the rest of these classes for this semester? Great, it's going to help nobody. I like that. That's good. That's good. Um, I think it's just the, the reassurance that when we're sharing the gospel, especially when we're, you know, doing evangelism or just having those gospel conversations, that um, you just feel that much more confident in those particular gospels. I mean, you know, really being able to, you know, um, be able to have conversations that they are the complete truth. I don't know. It just, uh, this chapter was really uh, exciting for me. I actually read it a couple of times because it really uh, just spoke to me and just reassures us that we can be preaching the gospel and have that full confidence in it, even though we have it in our heart and we know it to be the complete truth. When you are having those gospel conversations, it's just that much more, that much more powerful. It wants you to dig in even deeper because there were so many manuscripts and it was kind of, you know, time tested. Sure. All right. If y'all see me looking up and around, I have my notes over here. So that's why my eyes keep darting away. I'm, I'm trying to follow my notes and make sure we don't get too far off track. I'm not, I am paying attention, I promise even though my wife will tell you I, I might not be, but I am, I promise you. So, all right, well, let's jump into it, shall we? I think that um, when I was given this chapter, I'll be honest with y'all, I thought, oh, really? This is gonna be a dry little topic, but as I've read and as I've gone back to my notes and just refreshed myself on all this, I'm reminded this is valuable for us. Um, one, it informs us of how we get uh, our, our scripture. How did we get God's word? And so it helps us uh, know that. And I think it also enables us with our, with our gospel conversations, with our ministry efforts, uh, with whatever it is that God is inviting us into that we're responding to. So um, I think it gives us great confidence as we spend time in scripture, understanding how it came to be canonized. So let me ask y'all, uh, if you've done your reading, someone tell me, what is canon? How do we define it to somebody? Again, this is conversational. I don't want to lecture at you. I'm also very comfortable with uncomfortable silences. It, it's the law. It's general law, right? It's, it's, um, it's rule. Mm -hmm. That's what it says in the book, rule. Yep. Or the standard, you know, God's standard for humanity. Yeah, so it's, it's the rule, the standard by which we are uh, measuring and living our faith relationship with, with God through Christ. Uh, so when we understand that, hey, these words are inspired uh, and that they're infallible and uh, they're inerrant, it only helps us move further into our relationship with Christ. And so when we talk with someone, hang on, I got someone trying to join the class. Let me admit them real quick. When we start talking about canon, when we start uh, trying to understand how did we get these 27 books of the New Testament, um, 
when I, when I can look at the Gospels and when I can look at Paul's letters and understand this is how it came to be, it only gives me more, more confidence in, in the scripture that I'm reading. All right. So would anyone disagree that canon is closed? Is everyone in agreement? Is anyone going, no, there's a hidden gospel that we haven't got yet that's going to come one day? Because if you do, we probably should have a longer conversation over coffee. All right, everyone's in agreement. That's awesome. Kirsten, when did it officially close? You got to unmute yourself before you answer. It's when the last book was written. Okay, so you're given the theological answer. I like that. So when, when God wrote the, uh, gave the final word, that's when it was closed. I'll agree with you. What about from a chronological standpoint? What do y'all think? When did it close? The second century? End of the second century. Yes, yeah, somewhere in mid to late second century. You can you can find scholars that will argue one way or the other, and they all make strong points. Uh, I, I, again, I don't get too hung up on those details. I don't think we have to be able to say it was this year exactly. Um, I want us to really just be comfortable with, sometimes there's vagueness in that, but what we can affirm is it is closed. We have it. We have the totality of scripture now, and uh, unless God forms, informs a new covenant, which I don't think is going to happen. He makes that pretty clear that the, that the new covenant through Christ is the final covenant. Then we can affirm that scripture is closed. And that, that's awesome. Um, so okay. So, I'm sorry. Yes, ma'am. Teresa here. When it says um, in one sense that the canon was closed around 95, was that year 95 when Revelation was written? So when yeah. we talk about first century and second century, are we talking about it? We're talking about a span of a hundred years, correct? Yeah. So first century is zero to ninety-nine. Second right. century is one hundred to one ninety-nine. To me, that's amazing, right there. That's you know showing how the Holy Spirit has really just. When you think about a lifespan, you know, I mean, I'm fifty-one. I could live to be, you know, who knows the number of my days, you know, and just the thought of here we are, these, this, this group of books, the canon, it has to be Holy Spirit that kept it where it was and closed it, you know? Yeah, and when you really stop to think about how quickly it was written, I mean, Jesus was approximately 33 years old, uh, and, and if you really dig in, he probably wasn't born in 81. He was probably born more 83, 4, 5. And so um, if he died somewhere around 80, 37, well, that means in about 60 years, we had the totality of the New Testament written and, and closed. And that's huge. That's real quick um, for that to happen. So Hang on, I've still got folks jumping in and out. So if you see me pause, it means I've got folks in the waiting room and I wanna make sure we get them in to join us in all this. So good stuff. All right, so we've got this, uh, we've got the, the scripture being closed. Obviously the first, the, the final word of God written, it's closed by God, that makes sense to me. Uh, we've got the, the councils and all of that uh, kind of affirm everything uh, and close it off by mid to late second century and uh, we go from there. Um, 
questions or thoughts up to this point? Anything that you're like, hey, this didn't make sense to me. Yes, sir, Jeff. Um, I, I get all of the historical information. And, and one of the things I'll be looking for throughout the class is how do I be a better conveyor of the faith to other people? So are there, are there any really good uh, discussions where we can say, yes, this is God-inspired, God-breathed words that are in the New Testament? And how do we convince non-believers? Welcome to Zoom. Enter your meeting ID outside town. Well, hello. Welcome to Zoom. Were you able to hear the question? I, th I think you're asking, is there any uh, good resource out there for helping eight, convince eight, people that three, this is zero, inspired zero, word of God? So not to Jesus Duke anybody. It starts with the Holy Spirit though. I mean, that that's where it's going to if, if someone is not being led by the Spirit, they're not going to be convinced that this is God's inspired word. Uh, I think you're going back to the historical side of it, obviously. Is there a I mean scripture lays it out, but can you use scripture to defend scripture with a non-believer? I mean, that's a challenge. If they don't believe it's God's word, well, that's just some guy writing something. I don't know that I can trust that. Uh, so I don't know that I have a great resource that just definitively proves it. Uh, I could give you some apologetic resources that, that help you with that. But again, in my mind, if the Spirit's not moving on their heart, I mean, their sin nature is just going to keep them from embracing that, that truth and that reality. Um, now, what I would say here is just because they don't affirm it, that doesn't mean that it's still not authoritative and it, it's l not less inspired. Um, just because they don't want to believe God is God and the scripture is God's word, that does not diminish it. It just means that they're lost. And so, you know, we have to lovingly walk through them. Um, I, I think of it this way. A lot of times uh, my boss has authority over me. Uh, and I simply have to choose, am I going to follow his authority or am I going to look at him and go, yeah, you can't tell me what to do. He still has authority over me, whether I want to or not. And I'm just going to get uh, reprimanded for that. And eventually I believe that um, the Holy Spirit's working on everyone's heart in my mind. They're going to have to face that answer of, if, is, did I truly believe this was God's word or not? And do I truly believe that God is who he says he is in his word? So, Jeff, I don't know if I've answered your question or if I just rambled like a four-year-old, but um, that's what I got for you. All right, other questions at this point? Anything that you want to bring up, ask? Just along the, uh, I'm Wheeling. Really, uh, hey. Jeff was asking about, I mean, that's something similar pop up, pop up in my mind when I was reading this whole chapter. Um, it is like what you were saying by faith and by the Holy Spirit that I acknowledge that this is this is the word of God. But as I read through the whole Canaanite in this whole process here, what I realized that it's actually a purely a leap of faith because you know it is. There's always a thousand questions that people will be asking, you know, like, okay, you know, do we know that the whole scripture was circulated and was was commonly used by the early church? Uh, even, you know, even right after when they were written, uh, the, the New Testament. But what gave them the authority to choose those to be God's word? And of course, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but from a purely historical and process-wise, is there any good answer to answer someone that is, that is um, 
sincerely trying to figure out a, a, a rational process when it comes to that. What gives the early church, I mean, when I say apostle or early church, the, the authority to commonly circulate those and treat those as God's words? Sure. Sure, that's a great question, and it's a good uh, uh, tag-on with Jeff's question there. Um, all right, let me turn that over to the group. What do y'all think? I know what I'm going to answer, but I want to hear y'all's thoughts. We're all big boys and girls here. I'm thinking the reverence that they had, you know, because these were disciples that walked with Jesus. They were called. So going from there, and we're just talking about, this was the start. So this was the freshest of the fresh. So the reverence of the word and the Holy Spirit. I mean, you know, just to even circulate the scripture. I think there was just such a reverence. I can buy that. Uh yeah, my name is D. Lloyd. Uh, can you guys hey. hear me okay? Yes. Yeah, so what I would say also, in the early church, the apostles uh, were the ones that wrote these epistles. And who were the apostles, right? We got to think ourselves, who are these people that wrote these uh, epistles? You know, we got Paul, who was filled by the Holy Spirit, and he was a miracle worker, right? He raised a boy from the dead that fell off out of the window, right? He healed people as well. And we know that he did all these miracles that are recorded. We can look at the book of Acts. Uh, we can also look at Peter and what he did as well. And they have authority from God, and they were empowered to perform all, all these miracles, like uh, when Peter healed the uh, paralytic in the uh, gate beautiful inside the temple in front of the uh, Jewish authorities. So these special people, filled by the power of the Holy Spirit, they're the ones that wrote the epistles, and they were regarded as authoritarian on what they did. Uh, we also know by internal, um, internal information in the Bible that each, each other's um, epistles were regarded as scripture. So, um, from internal evidence, we can see who wrote the Bible that was inspired by the Holy Spirit according to uh, the uh, letter of Peter, Second uh, uh, Peter 2, uh, 19, I think it is. And then we can have uh, outside evidence like Josephus and Tacitus uh, and other writings as well from um, uh, the Roman um, historians that recorded events from the uh, uh, apostles um, and some of the events that Jesus did. So we have outside external evidence and we have internal evidence. And another evidence that we have is that the uh, apostles die as martyrs, right? Who would die for something that it was not authoritarian, right? I wouldn't die for something I don't believe in, but these people were hung upside down, were... Uh, pierced with, uh, 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 well, I can't remember the word, what it is exactly, but they were beheaded too. And, uh, anyways, uh, you get the point. Who's, the only one that didn't die as a martyr was John, who was in isolation in the, 
in the uh, in Patmos, in the Isle of Patmos, right? And he died at, at, at an old age. So um, we have internal and external evidence that point that all this is true. And you have to either believe it or not. It's the same way that you were talking about. You're either going to obey the law or, re- or disregard the law. I can. I know that speed limit is 70 miles an hour, but I can do 80 miles an hour. Do I believe the speed limit is 70 miles an hour? Yes. Do I obey by it? No. But I can get caught by the police, right? So, anyway, so that's my point. So, so let's jump in there. The, I think the book covers this fairly well for us. How, how do we have confidence that this is God's word, that these books are the right books? Uh, how, did, how did the early authors have the authority and maybe the audacity? Uh, to to circulate these books, and so over on page four and five, it begin of, of your uh, your book, it begins to walk you through the process of of how these came to be, and it gives the basis for which these books were affirmed as canon. And so when you when you start to get into that, we've answered the question: Is it closed? When did it close? And all that. What we need to begin to realize: Hey, the New Testament writers understood that what we're writing is special. They, they, I believe they understood that they were being inspired, but I don't think they, full, they understood the full depth of what God was doing to them, but they knew God was doing something. And so when we get in there, and you uh, mentions, mentions two passages, uh, 1 Timothy 5.18, uh, which references back to Luke 10.7 as scripture. I mean, it, it references it right next to Deuteronomy. And so the, uh, the writings of Luke be, are, are starting to be recognized as canonical, as authoritative. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, uh, Peter refers to the writings of Paul as scripture. And so the different writers began to realize, hey, there's men who are being used by God to write a scripture that's lining up and affirming and pointing the direction of where God is taking his people. Uh, you get a little past the the uh, original authors, and you start getting into the, the early church fathers. You know, guys like uh, Clement and Polycarp, and some of these guys that are leading the church after the apostles are dying. And and much like uh, was just mentioned, they're dying for this. These were the men that that were the disciples of the apostles. Well, they're learning firsthand, and they weren't going to die for something. Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly, like uh, Clement was burned and gladly burned and they were going to crucify him and he said no just go ahead and burn me that's how God's told me I'm going to die uh, because of what God is showing me Polycarp uh, thrown into the sea with an anchor chained around his neck that's a fun way to go isn't it so so much like was mentioned they're dying for these things the apostles are dying so uh, we see that even the early church fathers who had opportunity to speak against uh these writings are going, no, 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 these are, these are good, these are true. Um, as, as, as we get in there, it talks about the Muratorian canon and the final resolution of the New Testament canon. I believe that's on uh, page five of your book. Uh, it starts giving some, some, some of the stimuli and I believe some of the criteria for which canon was recognized. So I just want us to look at those real quick. I think they help inform us, especially as we talk with people who may be going, I'm not sure this is really God's word. Well, it's hard for us a couple thousand years removed from these times. 
So we have to appeal back to, well, the men and women and the, the early church who are walking with the apostles, who walked with Jesus, this is what was being used to determine the canonicity of certain letters, of certain gospels. Um, and let's affirm right here, there's a lot of letters and gospels that are out there that are beneficial, like Roger was talking about earlier with the Apocrypha, but they're just not as beneficial. They, they, aren't, um, they aren't as useful for guiding the church through the rest of, of time. And so when we walk through this, the stimuli for determining the canon, well, the prophetic nature of the New Testament books, uh, were they prophetic? Were they valuable and worthy of preservation? Uh, later on in the chapter, it talks about they had to determine because of the, the uh, oh, I'm blanking on the word, because of the persecution of the church, you know, uh, uh, Diocletian said, hey, let's burn all of the sacred Christian writings. Well, all of a sudden, you know, in the early 300s, now the church is having to go, wait a minute, we really have to preserve the most important books. We can't preserve them all, but let's really figure out which ones have to be preserved. Soon after that edict went out in 313, I believe it was, Constantine declared Christianity the official language of the Roman Empire, and, and persecution died quite a bit. So you had to figure out the books, which ones were really coming from the, the men, the prophets of God. Uh, the second thing is the church's need for authoritative scripture. Uh, you know, hey, they, they needed the books that conform to the apostolic teachings. If, if uh, the apostles were teaching certain things, which books affirmed that? And it, it, you had to be pretty close to those apostles in terms of the timeline. Because I don't know about y'all, I can't remember what was said 20 years ago uh, by the leaders of our country. Can you? Not easily. I mean, we have the internet. That helps us. They didn't have that back then. And so they quickly had to go, these words that, these, that, that are being written, man, they're lining up with what the apostles were saying. Uh, then you hit the heretical challenges. Uh, real quick, in the life of the, the early church, I mean, heresy was popping up, and it talks about Marcion in Rome in about 140. Did anyone do a deep dive into who he was and what he was teaching? Man, you missed out on some fun stuff. I, I did a little deep dive on that last night and thought, someone's going to ask me this. I need to be prepared. So let me just walk you through this. Hey, uh, Marcion, uh, where'd my notes go? I just lost it. There we go. Uh, he was teaching that there was a, a higher God and a lower God, and that the God of the Old Testament was not the same God as the New Testament. And so he was teaching um, somewhat Gnostic uh, kind of heretical teachings. Gnosticism, y'all familiar with that? Some of you are, some of you aren't. Be prepared. That's going to be covered a lot in Paul's letters because it was a challenge that was coming out. Basically, it was saying anything that is material, like our bodies, uh, is evil. It's sinful. And only the spiritual is good. And so in order to get enlightenment, you had to shed the material, and it took secret knowledge to achieve the spiritual freedom. Sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? Well, the early church said, hey, we got these heresies popping up. We have to, we have to combat them. And these letters are, are the letters, these writings are the writings that are going to allow us to show the heretical nature of these teachings. So Marcion is teaching Gnostic teachings. There's a higher God, there's a lower God. Uh, you have to get rid of the material order. Uh, Jesus was actually not a material being. He was an illusion. 
I mean, some interesting stuff. He took uh, the, well, which book was it? Was it Luke or John? Uh, he took the Gospel of John and heavily edited it and only took 10 letters of Paul's and said, this is the Bible. And if that heresy had been allowed to continue, we'd have a much different faith right now. And so the early church said, we have to combat these, these heretical teachings, and they had to do it quickly. Um, so, so you had those three, uh, those three stimuli. You also had that, hey, the missionary outreach. I mean, I'm assuming everyone here is, is, is attached with Brentwood. We have a pretty mission-minded church. Uh, we're taking the gospel to people in our neighborhoods, uh, in our lives, but around the world too, and not everyone speaks English. And so we have to figure out how do we get the, the gospel into their language? Even our deaf church is going, how do we get the gospel into the language of deaf people? And so um, much like we're dealing with it, the early church was dealing with that. Hey, we're going to places that don't speak Greek and Aramaic. We have to get these books. We can't translate everything. What are the most important ones for us to translate? So the missionary outreach that was happening. Uh, and then the persecution, which I mentioned earlier, Diocletian uh, in 303. Um, so, so those were the stimuli that really pushed forward, let's determine which books are canonical, which books are truly beneficial. Uh, and then we get to the, to the criteria. How do we determine this? How do we determine this book is better than that book? This book has more value than that book. Um, and I'll be honest, I'm glad I wasn't one of the people that had to do all that. One, because I would have had to read everything. No thanks. Um, but two, I mean, some of the some of the non-canonical books, when you read them, they make sense. They they have value, uh, but they don't have as much value as the canonical book. So let's look at these criteria. Uh, you have the oh, I can't say this word, apostolicity of the book. Yes, that's a fun word to say. Try saying that one ten times real quick. Um, so you know, hey was the author in direct or indirect association of a given work of an apostle? Uh, and, and we've heard some of this, but you look at Matthew, John, and Peter. Well, hey, those three were part of the 12. They walked directly with Jesus. Uh, you had Paul, who was made an apostle on Damascus Road. Um, man, so we've got four guys that, that had direct interaction with Jesus and were recording his words, who were recording the things that he was telling them to do as the New Testament church through the Holy Spirit, obviously. Uh, you got James and Jude, who are the half-brothers of Jesus. Man, could you imagine the uh, pressure of being the half-brother of Jesus? Never going to be able to live up to him, am I? Mom and, mom and dad like him a whole lot better, but they learned from him. And they captured the, the essence of what he was, he was about and the essence of what he was calling the New Testament church to be. Um, you've got Mark, who is an indirect, uh, a close associate of Peter and Paul. Uh, you, you find that he is mentioned throughout uh, Acts and how he was going out with Paul and, uh, and Barnabas. And actually, they got into, Paul and Barnabas got into a fight over Mark. Uh, hey, so he was with them. And then you got Luke, who was an indirect uh, a traveling companion of Paul's. So, so are the authors directly or indirectly connected to the apostles, to Jesus? So that was part of the criteria of determining, is this book more authoritative or less authoritative than other writings out there? Uh, then you had the orthodoxy. Anyone want to define orthodoxy for me? Big word, Kirsten, did you look that up in your dictionary? You're muted, I can't hear you. 
I know, I know. I have a really bad habit of that when I'm not running the meeting. Um, no, I did, but I actually had questions here that I was about to ask you. When oh, you no, let's hear it. Yeah, anytime no, you have a question, says, flag me. So the orthodoxy, when it says that it confirmed to a church's rule of faith, I was just really curious, like, how, like, what does that even mean? Like, the rule of faith. Does that make sense? So, yeah, so especially as we look at the early churches, did it line up with the apostles' teaching? Okay. Did, did, it, did it affirm what the apostles were conveying about Jesus, or did it oppose that? I mean, we have to keep in mind that the 12 who walked with Jesus, they were the direct witness of Jesus in his ministry, and they were uh, directly reporting, this is what Jesus did, this is what Jesus said, this is what Jesus commanded. So uh, early on, you had the, the witnesses of what the apostles were teaching does this book contradict it or does this book affirm it? Uh, and so, you know, that's why the books that are, are dated further down the road uh, at, at a later date don't have the same weight as the books were, that were written early within the first, you know, 60, 65 years after Jesus's death. Because, I mean, the apostles weren't old men when Jesus died, but they weren't like three. They were, they were you know, somewhere in their teens to early to 30s. And so they they were starting to get old too uh, towards the end of the first century. So the books that were coming out, how, did it line up? So so the rule of faith, uh, let me think how to answer that question. What is the rule of faith? Well, it, it doesn't line up with what we are saying uh, our faith is about. Um, the Baptists have a rule of faith called the Baptist faith and message. Does And it affirms what the scripture teaches. Um, and so so within that, I think what we have to say is orthodoxy, let me give you the definition of that. Orthodoxy is defined as the authorized or generally accepted theory, doctrine, or practice of the church. So does, does the book uh, endorse and authorize the accepted theory, doctrine, and practices of the apostles? Does that make sense? Yeah. At that time, there were so many witnesses. I mean, you know, all the witnesses that were a part of Jesus's miracles. I mean, even John said that if he were to try and write down everything. So you had all those witnesses that were verifying what the apostles were writing who were, you know. Yeah, like, like was pointed out, if, if someone had written something that wasn't true, the witnesses would have quickly spoke up, wait, 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 that's not how it happened. Or those that were being martyred soon after the, the early church was formed, they wouldn't have died for it because they knew it wasn't true. And so the witnesses are huge within that. Um, uh, let's see, Antiquity, was the book actually written during the apostolic period or was it written centuries afterwards and someone just had a miraculous discovery of a hidden book that no one else had ever seen before? Um, I smile a lot right now when I, when, you know, news hits, oh, we found a, a hidden gospel. I'm like, 2,000 years later? Man, that must have been some pretty crazy cave to hide that, that book in. Um, and so, you know, how, how soon after or during the apostolic period was this book written? Uh, ecclesi ecclesiastical usage, fun word again, ecclesiastical, basically meaning was the document already widely used in the church? You know, the early church who had the apostles with them, were they already using it quite a bit? Or was it just marginally used, occasionally referenced? Um, 
So those are, those are the criteria for canonicity. And, and I think, uh, I mean, the one that I really lean in to is the, uh, that word again, apostolicity of the book. Did the author directly or close indirectly have a connection to Jesus? That's huge for me. That's usually what I line up on when someone's pressing me. Well, how do I know that's actually a valid book? Well, let me tell you about the author. And uh, if I understand the rest of this series that you guys are going to walk through this quarter, you're going to be digging into that. Who is the author? What's the date that this was written? How does this line up with, um, you know, the New Testament timeline? Uh, and that's huge. So I'll encourage you really lean into discovering who are these guys that wrote, wrote these, uh, these canonical books. All right, questions up to this point. We've had a few that were great questions, things that maybe, hey, what about this criteria or the stimuli um, for, for determining the canon? Um, I'm, I'm going to play the role of, uh, of, uh, of uh, the, op how shall be, the opposite thinker here. Great, the devil's uh, advocate. You can say it, go for it. <laughs> um, so if I, after reading all this and we went through what all the everything that we discussed, is it simple? To, can we just uh, is it simple to summarize that everything that we have to to you know there's one thing about all this how should I bet, all this that it, whether it is the authenticity or the uh, you know whether it's widely used or a policy, uh, a policy, the 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 writer will uh, excuse me. Uh, apostles and all this point to only one I mean one conclusion when we only rationalizing thinking this is that it all relies on the apostle and their credibility and their experience with Jesus and their the accuracy of their record of what it is you know it dies down to when it comes to the criteria this proves that they are we rely on the apostles in knowing that this is the word of God. Yes, I think that is definitely part of it. Uh, I think the other part of it comes down on the theological side that we're going to jump into later on. Mm -hmm. Do we truly believe in the inspiration yeah. of, of these words? So I believe that the, the human connection to it is definitely something we have to appeal to but I still think you can look and go, well, that's just some crazy guy writing a book, you know? And if you don't have the faith of, well, God is inspiring through the Holy Spirit, the, the writings of these men, um, you're still going to struggle, even if I can show yeah. you that person was a close connection to Jesus. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the point I'm trying to reach at, is that rationally, it can only, it can only lead us this far yes. in knowing that this is all the evidence that we have. Yes, you know and, it is above and beyond a lot of other historical record, anything like that, that yeah. requires a a leap of faith or the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to know that this, know that our Bible is the Word of God, is inerrant and is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it is our guidebook, you know, that to to give us the 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 level of authority that it has, that piece is very important. Yeah. I think it goes back to somewhat to my rambling answer to Jeff's question earlier. Uh, we can give all of the rational reasons why this is God's word, but at some point, the, the you, you said it well, there has to be a leap of faith 
And that, in my mind, that's the work of the Holy Spirit on the heart and the life of that person questioning. Um, you know, uh, the old saying is you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. That, that applies here. I can give someone all the evidence for why this book is, is a strong canonical book uh, that is inspired by God. But until someone really believes this is who God is and this is what God has done, they're not going to, they're not going to embrace it. They're just going to label it, you know, this is the writings of men who bought into a fable or a lunatic's teaching. Um, you know, I, I wish I had the C.S. Lewis quote right in front of me, uh, but you know, something about he, he's a liar or a lunatic um, or the Lord. And that's what people have to determine. Who is Jesus? Who is God? Is he the Lord? Is he a lunatic or is he a liar? And, and you know what, Yes. One thing, uh, just to add to it, too, as a newer believer, so I was raised uh, in the Protestant church, but then was away from the church for over 30 years, and only seven years ago did I, um, was I saved, and so whenever I'm talking with people, and you can see that wall, and, you know, you continue to try and pray for them, and continue to, you know, befriend them, but when we, a lot of people that I have um, kind of talked with about gospel conversations, that frustration that you want them to experience that salvation like yourself, but then we're almost putting ourselves in the driver's seat of questioning God's timing for that person. And, you know, when myself and our family was saved, had it not been at the point that it was with God's timing, we would not be reaching and having those conversations with the people we are because our story would have been so different. So I think it's, you know, just kind of a little side note that I think we all know, but sometimes if you really have the gift of evangelism and you want to, you know, you just want everyone to be able to hear the word of God, embrace it, open their heart and be saved in that moment that we need to just, you know, remember it's, it's not our timing always. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's good. That's a good word for us. Uh, I'm looking at the clock. I want to make sure that we get through the majority of this. So I'm going to, I'm going to speed up just a little if we're okay with this. Um, but again, this is the fun of it. I enjoy the conversation side of it. So uh, Kostenberger, the author of the book that we're reading, he actually advocates for an earlier uh, closure of scripture. Um, he says that, you know, the, the uh, well, geez, what was that called? The Muratorian canon actually affirms, a, a, confirms at least an end of the second century, but Kostenberger argues for an earlier one. He walks through a series of rationale for that based on the dating of uh, the books and when they were written, um, but you know all the Gospels uh, were written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Okay, for those of you that are not history buffs, maybe even for our history buffs, if you haven't gone and read some on the history of the New Testament church, I'm going to encourage you to do that. Uh, do not go to Wikipedia though; that is not your friend. Okay, um, there's a guy named. Gusta Gonzalez that has a, a two-volume uh, history of the church. Uh, I'm going to disappear for five seconds, grab it off my bookcase for you so you guys can see what it looks like. Can you say his name again? Yes, Justo, J-U-S-T-O Gonzalez. This is the book right here. This is volume one. Now, this is an old copy, so it may have a different uh, uh, cover at this point. This work is solid for helping us understand the history of Christianity. 
Um, and so volume one covers the early church to the dawn of the Reformation. And uh, the second volume is the Reformation to present day. And when I bought the book, present day was 2000. So, you know, it hasn't covered the last 20 years. So uh, the good stuff is nothing's changed the centuries before that. So that's good. Um, so really, if I encourage you go, and you're going to talk more about this next week, about the politics and everything that was happening uh, in, in the life of the New Testament church early New Testament church, but you need to understand where things happen. Why did Jerusalem fall? All of that fun stuff, it plays into how we determine when canon. It, so we can use those historical moments to date and, and affirm when the canon closed. So uh, you can look at, at all of that. The Pauline letters, hey, you know, even by the mid 60s uh, of the first century, Paul's letters were starting to be recognized as canon. Uh, we mentioned earlier that Peter and his writings referred back to Paul's letters as scripture. Uh, Clement of, of Rome and Polycarp were both bishops in the early, uh, early New Testament church in about 96 AD. They were referring to Paul's letters as scripture. Um, and so Kostenberger really uses these things to show, hey, the canon actually probably closed closer to the start of the second century rather than late second century. Again, let's not get too hung up on the date. We can all affirm that the canon is closed and we can celebrate that. So we don't have to keep looking for, for new revelation from God. Um, okay. Uh, does anyone really want to talk about why they're in the current order they are? Yes, let's do that. Some are saying no, some are saying yes. Tell me what the second book is again. Oh yeah, the second book of the uh, of the history. Volume two, the story of Christianity. I thought you said the Reformation. Okay. Yeah, it, it covers the Reformation to the present day. So, and if I had been smart, I'd have looked it up on Amazon for you and told you how much they are, but I'm sorry, I wasn't that considerate. My apologies. Um, so, all right. Uh, can I, I think can I do a, a, a shameless plug right now? Uh, I mean, if you want to, sure. So, um, I know the thickness of those books might be challenging to a lot of people. And if you feel like you'll die never having gone through those two volumes, I would recommend um, if you have the podcast app on your, um, your Apple phone, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary has free lectures and they have um, History 1 and History 2, which is the history of Christianity. And they cover as well from the early church right through to modern times. And I listened that, to that in my car on the way to work and I think I covered the entire history in a month. So awesome. that, that might that be, for those who hate reading. Uh, not that, that I hate reading, but you know. So good stuff. Thank you for sharing that, that resource. I actually just Googled it so I can remember to, to find it later on my phone. So um, hey, so there is some, some purpose reasoning behind why the books line up the way they do. Matthew starts out as the first book of the New Testament because of the genealogy. I know many people read it and be like, oh, let's just skip this. It's not very important, but it is important. It shows how Jesus is connected all the way back to the beginning, which I love. So that's a good thing. Um, you know, then you get to the other, uh, the other 
three Gospels, uh, the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, they're all pretty similar. If you ever want to have fun, go buy yourself a Synoptic Bible and really explore where they share uh, material and where they're different from one another. A lot of fun. Got to do that in New Testament 1 and 2 back in seminary uh, with colored pencils. If you want to know more about that, let me know. We'll walk you through how to do that. Uh, John, he wraps it up well because, well, one, his gospel's a little different than the synoptics, and then you get into Acts, which is a bridge from the gospels to the, the Paul letters. Um, without the gospels, Acts doesn't make a whole lot of sense, uh, so you, you kind of got to plug it right after the, the gospels because it's continuation of the, the historical story, basically, of how the New Testament church formed. Um, you get through Paul's letters, Again, y'all are going to go through all of this, so we're just blowing through this uh, to get there. And then you get into the general epistles, starting with Hebrews. Uh, you, you may know that there's some debate if Paul actually was the author, but because there is some folks who hold to it, uh, they put it pretty close to Paul's letters just in case. Um, that's At least that's what I'm going to tell you. So we'll go from there. Uh, and then you get into, there's no real consensus of why it goes James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st through 3rd John, Jude, and all of that. Uh, but, you know, historically, we can see that it's consistent. And then, obviously, Revelation, the bookmark to Genesis. Everything is restored. Sin is defeated. The tree of life is back within uh, the midst of humanity, but not the tree of knowledge, just the tree of life. Uh, and so, it's just this, you got Genesis, hey, everything's great until Genesis 3, and then you got Revelation where everything is restored to the way God intended it for be. So great bookmark uh, and ending for, for scripture. Uh, all right, anyone want to tell me why these books were so quickly uh, accepted by the New Testament early church? Other than all the criteria and stimuli that we mentioned earlier? Has to do with the covenant. New Testament, uh, the early church was expecting uh, new documents, manuscripts, testaments, because the old covenant was confirmed by the writing of documents and stuff. So they were expecting exactly. the same thing to happen now that the new covenant had come about. Exactly. So uh, that is it. New covenant new new scripture to go with that covenant, which uh, if I was looking for that, I'd pretty much quickly affirm from the documents that had apostolic authority and uh, all of that fun stuff also. All right. It's also the, the duty of the church to proclaim that truth. You know, these, these people were searching to go on the mission and do the work, so they had to, you know, they wanted to serve people. All right, let's jump into some theology. You ready? Who can explain to me the theology of inspiration? Anyone willing to try? All right, get ready. That's then. one of those okay. questions that sound like it's a trick question because you feel like you know the answer, but you're scared you say it and you're wrong. That's, that's fair. I won't, I won't throw anyone under the bus with a trick question. Let me read to you uh, what the theology of inspiration is. Do not try to capture this word for word. Just try to get the gist of it, okay? Um, and I can shoot you a website if you'd like that, that I got this from. 
But the theology of inspiration implies that God is the source or origin of what is recorded in Scripture, and God through the Holy Spirit used human authors to write what he revealed in the Bible. Uh, these human authors were, were not mere copyists or transcribers. The Holy Spirit guided and controlled the writers of Scripture who used their own vocabularies and styles but wrote only what the Holy Spirit intended. This is true only of the original manuscripts, not the copies or translations. And uh, although the original manuscripts have been lost to us, God has pre uh, preserved the biblical text to a remarkable degree. The Bible is verbally inspired. This means from the words of the Bible, not just the ideas uh, were inspired. So God guided the writing uh, of, of the Bible, of the New Testament, well, Old Testament too, uh, through human authors who have their own personalities, their own writings, but he guided the whole process. He made sure that he that they wrote what he wanted written. Um, sounds a little bit like, hey, a possession kind of moment, but it wasn't, I promise. It was simply the Holy Spirit guiding them the right way. Um, and so I, I like to think of it, and this is just the Dave Cruz analogy, so don't, don't take this to the bank or anything, but it's kind of like... Uh, God was just whispering in their ears, here's what I want you to say. Here's what I want you to say. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted you to say. Man, that was some good word choices. All those were exactly how, how you would say it too. Good job. So it's God simply guiding the steps in that. So the inspiration is, these are God's words simply given to us through human uh, people, resources. So when we read these and someone says, well, isn't that just the writings of a crazy person? No. These are the writings of someone being guided by the Holy Spirit. Um, again, your faith has to come into play there to, to understand that. All right, questions on the theology of inspiration? Because I do want to get to translations and uh, all that fun stuff, because I think that's some, some fun conversation as well. Inerrancy. Anyone want to try to define that? What is inerrancy? Without error. Thank you. You get the gold star. That is exactly what it means. There is no error. Uh, the Bible is free from error in what it says. Um, let's see. Uh, the factual, verbal, historical inerrancy of the Bible is uh, in its original documents free from, in, from error in what it says about geography, history, and science as well as in what it says about God. Uh, its authority extends to all matters about which the Bible speaks. It is the supreme source of our knowledge of God and of the salvation provided through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our indispensable source for daily living. So you might find things that seem to contradict each other in scripture, but when you really stop to look at what is one passage saying that contradicts another, uh, let's talk about um, Paul, that it is uh, faith, that is uh, that you're saved by your faith, but then you get into James that might be read as, hey, you're saved by your works. Well, no, 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 no. Those contradict each other. The Bible is without error, so you have to, you have to really look at what is James writing, and you begin to realize, oh, wait, he's talking about faith, which leads to works. Um, it's not your faith. It's not your works that save you. So people will point out those, those, uh, places where the Bible seems to contradict, it's our job to be like, no, the Bible's without error. So either we don't have the complete understanding yet, and we will at some point, or 
you're misreading that passage. Let me help you understand what the author intended uh, in that passage. Cool? Questions about inerrancy? No, great. What languages were the New Testament written in? Anybody? Greek. Greek. Uh-oh, I see voices, mouse moving, but I don't hear voices. Hebrew. So Hebrew is the Old Testament, yes. So Aramaic falls in there. Uh, you will find that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Jesus spoke Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. So um, we just have to be aware that, man, Jesus was smart. He was a whole lot smarter than I was. I, I can barely get English down. Um, and most days I don't do that very well. And so uh, when we look at this, uh, I'm trying to think through uh, textual transmission. Um, is, is the Bible today what was originally written? How can I have confidence that the Bible that was printed in the year 2020, uh, the same Bible that was written, you know, almost 2,000 years ago? All right. How do I, how do I explain that to somebody? Anyone want to try a, an explanation? Overwhelming manuscript evidence over thousands of years documented not only by Christian sources, but also non-Christian sources, historians, other documents that have nothing to do with Christianity affirming the archeological and historical data and, and facts given in the Bible, all of that together amounting to a lot of evidence that if you reject, you would have to reject every other historical document in existence. I think that's huge right there. Uh, if you did not spend any time with table 1.1 on page 11, let me encourage you to do that because as I was reading through this, um, I know that I had to read a lot of those in high school. Not all of them, but I had to read a lot of them. Uh, Beowulf and Canterbury Tales and the Iliad. Uh, I read some of the, the Gallic Wars and my teachers held those things up as authoritative and without dispute that they were the original works. Well, when you look at how many copies are really there one copy of Beowulf, and my English teacher was willing to say, we have the exact same thing that was written all those years ago. Uh, when you consider that there are, where'd my numbers go? 6,000 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin Vulgate manuscripts. Um, there's a lot of ancient manuscripts of the scriptures that we can compare and use to inform our modern translations. We can have confidence because of that vast number of ancient manuscripts that what we're reading today is accurate. Um, now, you'll find people that want to argue that all day long. And, and I think what Cassandra said was, hey, if you're willing to accept these other historical works with less manuscript evidence, why can't you accept this? Um, and, and so we'd have to throw out our willingness to accept Beowulf with only one copy. Um, and I don't, yes, ma'am, I see a hand, go for it. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your point. No, you're great. Um, I just wanted to clarify on page 11 at the top when it says, and more than 9,300 early versions, what does that mean? Early versions of what? I asked the same question and I have no good answer. 
Uh, I was reading that going, there's not enough uh, information there, Mr. Kostenberger, please uh, next time elaborate <laughs> further. So yeah, great question. I wish I could answer that one, but I don't have a good answer for you. I'm sorry. You can uh, tell Roger I failed you miserably, okay? So it's good. All right. Are the avail available translations faithful? Can we, can we use them? How do we determine? All right, let's have a little fun here. <laughs> what translation of the Bible do you use? New King James. New King James. Why? Because I'm one of those people. <laughs> You're one of those people. Okay, that's fair. Now, which, which New, King's New King James translation are you using? Well, you said New King James. Never mind. I'm thinking yeah. King James. You're good. You're good. What else? Kirsten, what do you use? HCSB. HCSB. Man, you good Southern Baptist. You, I love it. So. I literally, I sat in a Bible aisle for almost three hours looking at all the different translations and pulling everything off the shelf. And it was just the one that I could understand the best. Okay. So you got it because of your ability to read it yeah. and, and understand it. All right. What else? Anyone using the ESV? NIV. Uh, so CSB. I, oh, Brian, go for it. No, I use, I use uh, CSB, but also carry around one of the, uh, <laughs> one of the old, uh, Gideon Bibles, you know, the little small New Testaments yes. that we got when we were kids, because those are King James, and I just love, um, I love referencing the King James translation, because there are some differences there, and it's, I think it's good for perspective. I agree, I agree. <clears throat> but, like, I literally carry, I'll literally carry CSB and, and King James, it's kind of a, uh, dorky thing to do but it's not it's not the old testament it's just the new testament so right that's good that helps me justify it cool well, someone else was about to say something up there uh, i was saying i use niv but i love the nas um new american standard bible because sure. it capitalizes every time it's referring to god <laughs> and i get bugged when it's not capitalized you know, if it's referring to Jesus or God, and I noticed that the New American Standard Bible will, and then I'll use my Amplified Bible when I go to church, because then it just kind of amplifies, so I have a variety. Sure, that's fair. Yes, ma'am. So, I'd like to give a proper answer to your question of why. Okay, great. I, I picked the New King James. Um, when it comes to translation styles, as it mentions here in the textbook, there's the, the literal kind of word for word, and then there's the idea for idea version. Um, and usually the word for word ones are more difficult to understand, but I'm just someone who's very adamant on truth and accuracy. And I would rather have something that's difficult, but accurate than easy but potentially could lead me astray even on the smallest thing because when something is difficult i'm going to sit there and pray over it and mull over it and research it and you know like really dive in um and if it's easy i kind of just accept it at face value and i'm like oh that's what it means 
And I don't want to do that because even though I believe the intentions of every single translator was good, you know, they, they no, I don't know if there's anyone out there who's like, well, I'm going to translate the Bible really badly to lead people astray, but humans are fallible. And so they, the translator may have read it and said, I think this is the idea of this phrase or scripture or verse, yes. and they put it down and you don't know that that's their, their interpretation of what's being said. And that bothers me. I'd rather struggle with something for five years. And I've had scriptures like that, that I've read over and over. And I just, they just don't make sense to me. And then five years down the line, one time I'm just sitting there and it's like, whoa, this suddenly broke open. And I don't know, I just, it irks me if it's not literal. Yeah. And, and listen, <laughs> I, I want to affirm all of the translations that y'all are using. Um, I think that there is value to all of them. And depending on where you are at and what your mindset is towards how you want to be challenged or uh, engage scripture, pretty much all of the modern translations, I believe, uh, are useful. Um, now, we just, just brought it up. Hopefully, you guys read about the different uh, uh, translation methodologies. I, I like to think of it as the word-for-word -word approach, which uh, was just mentioned. Hey, it can be a little more difficult uh, because they're trying to capture exactly what the word means, and sometimes that just becomes a little wooden or stiff or awkward uh, as you read the passage or the sentence. Um, you got that phrase, I call it a phrase-for-phrase -phrase or thought-for-thought -thought, uh, translation, where the translators, and usually, let me just go ahead and say, it's not one person doing the translating. It is usually a team of, of men and women who are biblical experts, language experts, uh, historical experts who are working on this. Uh, as an aside, if you don't know what your Bible's uh, translation approach was, usually towards the very beginning, there is a page or two that describes how they approach the translation. Um, Kirsten may not have known that when she was sitting in Lifeway for multiple hours. Maybe she did. But if you're looking at something going, I don't understand how they're approaching this, go find that page. It'll also tell you the men and women who worked on the translation and their credits uh, and, and why they're the expert that they are. Uh, the book has this uh, the par a paragraph, and I didn't highlight it, but I wrote it down. It says, the goal of all translators is the production of an English version that is an accurate rendering of the text, written in such a way that the Bible retains its literary beauty, theological grandeur, and most importantly, its spiritual message. So if you're using the New King James, the ESV, the Holman, the CSB, whatever it is, uh, I want to affirm that. Uh, I think sometimes we get caught up, uh, if you're not reading this, you're obviously not as spiritual as I am. Well, maybe you're just a, a word nerd and you like that kind of stuff. And maybe you're a new believer and you need something that's more like the New Living Translation that's going to kind of help you develop a passion for God's Word. Uh, let me just affirm you in that. If you encounter someone that's using a different translation, man, encourage them. Uh, they may get to the point where, hey, I'm going to send and because I want the challenge of, of the uh, word for word, or you may find someone that I can't get past the New Living Translation because I just don't have a big vocabulary and I need the, the easier uh, word for word, I mean, thought for thought approach. Um, let me also toss out that there's also the, uh, there's some other ver uh, translation 
philosophies out there. Uh, the CSB, uh, which is what Brentwood uses, um, the Christian Standard Bible, it uses an optimized equivalence, which tries to find a healthy balance between the word for word and thought for thought or phrase for phrase approach. So it's trying to take the best of both worlds. I think sometimes they succeed well, other moments, eh, maybe not. So, you know, um, and I don't think uh, that's where we go in back into, hey, the translations, they can, you can find errors. I mean, someone's going to mistype something. Um, well, there's an error. Was that in the original manuscript? Nope. That's someone who just typed too fast and didn't get it right. Uh, the other philosophy is the paraphrase. Uh, Eugene Peterson in the message is the most known one today. Um, I'm not going to encourage you to use that as your primary, but I think it's sometimes it's nice to look at it and go, oh, that's what it would look like in modern vernacular, you know. So uh, someone said, I think it was Teresa said, hey, I use this at this point. I use this translation over here, and I take, uh, I think you said the amplified when you go to church. There's value to looking at different translations and seeing, well, this word might actually be translated this way. Um, unless you're a Greek or Hebrew scholar, which I would assume if you are, you might not be in this class. Uh, you know, and I'll be honest, I took those languages in seminary, nowhere near being an expert. You have to spend decades learning the nuances of all these languages. Uh, so let me just encourage you that. Um, there's a translation for everybody, no matter your vocabulary or theological maturity. Um, so let's let's encourage folks as we encounter them. Um, if I'm if I'm talking with someone about Jesus for the first time, I'm probably not putting a word for word in their hands. Uh, I'm probably going to put, you know, the New Living, something that is a lower grade level reading. Uh, it, you all understand? Well, maybe you don't. I didn't realize it till I was in seminary. Uh, all of the translations have different grade levels. So like the uh, the New King James. Uh, is written on about a 12th grade reading level. So, you know, if you if you love words and you love reading, that may be where, you, where you're drawn to. Whereas the NIV, and I used to use that all the time, is written on a seventh grade level. Awesome. You know, the message written on a fourth or fifth grade level. Um, and so just realize, hey, as you encounter people, as you minister to people, and you're helping them find the right Bible, uh, obviously they can't go sit in Lifeway for three hours and, and pull every Bible out anymore, can they? So we have to help them explore which, which translation is the right one for you. And maybe it's not the one you're using, but that's okay. All right, comments, questions, observations, things that you're like, what about? Yes, sir, I saw a hand. Yeah, just a quick note. I mean, um, I find the concordance a very helpful tool Whenever, whenever I dive in on the version or translation that I have make absolutely no sense or have uh, controversial, I use Chinese Bible most of the time. I okay. Mean, which is totally sure. different. But, uh, but whenever I see any passages or any controversial or whatever, I usually go into concordance and look up the word. And from the concordance, I reference to all the different area in the Bible that uses the same word. Right. From there, it gives me a better sense of what that actually means in that passage. That's just what, what I use. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of study Bibles have those concordances in the back. If you're willing to throw out, you know, 12 to 30 bucks, you can go buy a concordance that's standalone. That's usually about that thick and uh, helps you walk through those kind of word studies to get better. Oh, you, hey, yeah, I'm old school, man. Books are my friend. So... <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's just it's just so useful when you just press on 
one word and then you know it links you to everything else so yeah that's huge you know there there's a, a logos if you can afford that program that's a huge one to help you in those word studies also all right other comments questions observations yes ma'am cassandra i'm gonna do another shameless plug all right and, let's hear it um if you can't afford something fancy like logos something i've been using for a long time is called eSword. It's free on your computer. If it's on your phone, I think it's $3. And um, it has a lot of free versions on the, of the Bible on it. So you can download a lot. You can have them side by side open. You can write notes. You can do word searches through the whole Bible. Um, but what I find most useful is their uh, King James Version. They have one that has the, um, the Greek. There's a word for it the numbers, the numerical, blah, 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 blah. The, the um, Strong's strong yeah, references. There we go. And so it makes to almost every single word. So you can just click it and it pops up a little box and it'll tell you, this is the Greek word. This is what it means. These are the synonyms um, as you're reading. So I found that very helpful. Yeah, I believe uh, I'm looking it up real quick. Go ahead. Someone's saying something. Yeah. Um, I use also an interlinear New Testament or interlinear Old Testament. Yes in which you can go from straight from the Greek to the English. Um, and uh, that's uh, very helpful. But also Logos has a, uh, <clears throat> a free version of the software with the basic package that you can download to your computer or phone. And you can also get the, uh, it's got the concordance and the inner linear, um, New Testament and Old Testament. Uh, awesome. And you can use how many times the same word was used and just a lot of information. Yeah. And um, it, as you can tell, I have an accent and I'm from Argentina. So uh, for me, what is very useful, I study my uh, theology and, and my Bible in English, but I also go ahead and also read it in Spanish. Sure. Um, and by having the two languages and when I study something, it, it builds up because you can have a better uh, context. Um, yeah, better idea what's going on. Um, I think I just use the NASB Bible. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I I, I use the NASB Bible uh, when I'm studying, but when I'm uh, preaching or when I what well, preaching I call it, you know, when I'm evangelizing and talking to other people, I don't use NASB. I probably might use uh, NLT or NIV. So uh, for those who are new to the faith or they may be wondering about the faith it's a lot easier if you can speak something that is a little more um, easier to comprehend sure. uh, according to their level um, and i also uh, i'm a little bit of a nerd i have like six seven different uh, versions of the bible now i got esv but i also like the tld which is a tree of life bible i don't know if you guys are familiar with it or not but the reason why i use that one is because uh, i like to read the messianic titles as they were um, spoken in the day and also uh, the names of God and all the terminology. And I also have the complete Jewish Bible and the Orthodox Bible. Awesome. So when you say word for word Bible, mm -hmm. are we talking, what are you talking about? So it no, takes, confused. Yeah, so it's a, uh, it takes the, the word, the word in Greek, let's say love, uh, and it tries to reconstruct the English passage 
as close to the Greek rendering. So your your you know normally we have the uh, um, I'm blanking on my English capabilities here. Uh, I, the man ran across the road, right? So so you got the noun and the verb, and then someone help me out who's much better at English. What's that across the road? You know the descriptor. Uh, the the Greek might actually have the descriptors first. And so it's going to try to make it line up as quick as possible. Like if you'll go grab, um, oh, the new American standard. Did I, I think you said you use that some, right? That, that's a word for word. So when, if, you, uh, if you grab that and put it next to the NIV, which is a thought for thought, uh, you're going to discover, you'll read one passage in the new American and it's going to read a little stiffer. Whereas in the, the NIV, it may flow but the, the New American is going to be closer to actually how it was written in the original language. So then does that mean, going back to what Cassandra was saying, does that mean that the King James Version is the most like word for word from... We can argue all day about if that's really okay, the most okay. word for word. You're opening up in a big can of worms right there. So <laughs> it's good though. Um, you know, again, I will, I will say on this, you need to go read and figure out what your preference is. And you may discover, hey, I'm going to use multiple versions. Like uh, yeah, several. I use a lot of different versions. Because sure. you're right, I do. So I have five kids and I have a Bible for each child, you know. That's awesome. Inheritance to them. <laughs> but anyway, so they're all marked up. And when I'm done marking that one up, then I'll get started on the next one. <laughs> I love it. That's that's a great thing to do. All right. I don't want to keep you all because, well, we're coming up on 730. But I want to make sure that uh, there are no pressing questions. Um, I also want to tell you, hey, if you want to continue the conversation, uh, I'm happy to talk with you. You can find me over at the uh, church at West Franklin. Um, WestFranklinChurch.com is our website. I'll give you my email address. It's D-K-R-U-S-E at WestFranklinChurch.com. Uh, I'll tell you right now, Roger is a great conversationalist on all of this, and he welcomes those kind of things. Uh, we have a guy on our staff named Paul Wilkinson. I bet he'll be with you guys some. Um, talk with Paul. He would love to talk with you. Uh, your campus pastor, they're going to be great too. I don't know where everyone's at in terms of their campus uh, affiliation, but all of our campus pastors are solid men who can talk with you about this stuff also. All right, unless you have anything else, you're like, wait, 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 I have to have this answered. Going once, going twice. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to say we're done for the evening. Thank you for putting up with me for the last hour and a half. It's been fun. Thank you. Y'all enjoy your night.